You're listening to The Dirt on the Past, a show on history and archaeology and why it matters today. You can find us on the Extreme History Project website and also on kgvm.org. Thanks for listening. Welcome to The Dirt on the Past from the Extreme History Project and KGVM Community Radio. Whether digging up a site or dusting off the archives, we bring you some of the most fascinating and cutting-edge research in history and archaeology and discuss why it matters today. Join me, Nancy Mahoney, alongside co-host Crystal Alegria, as we converse with anthropologists, archaeologists, and historians about how they bring the past alive. Welcome to this week's edition of The Dirt on the Past. I'm Nancy. And I'm Crystal. And we are the co-hosts of the program. This week, we're at the Extreme History Headquarters, and we are going to be talking about the quote-unquote Venus figurines, the myths, facts, and objectifications surrounding those voluptuous ladies. <laughs> Today, it's just going to be Crystal and I, who have both um, come from different uh, routes to have an interest in this topic in uh, two time periods that we both have spent some time visiting both physically and intellectually sort of in the school book. So I'm interested in the Venus figurines of the Paleolithic period and have done some work on that. And you, Crystal, have a different period that you're familiar with. Yeah, I'm interested in the Neolithic period, and we'll define what these periods are a little later on. But I'm interested in the Neolithic period and the Venus figurines from Malta, which is a small island in the Mediterranean. So we wanted to talk about the Venus figurines because a lot of people have an idea of what Venus figurines are, that they're feminine figurines uh, showing the female form and focusing on exaggerated contours of um, breasts, maybe the belly and the buttocks, and that these have been items that have been subject to a lot of pop culture interpretations and misrepresentations. And and oddly, even some interesting scientific attempts to interpret how they might be used and how they might represent um, hardwiring in our biology. So we wanted to address some of what we see as what we know factually, what are true myths, and how these misrepresentations can kind of have these downsides of objectifying female form even in the present. Right, right. And probably just so you can get an image in your mind of what we're talking about, the most popular one is the Venus of um, Willendorf, which was found in Austria. And so that might, you know, if you just want to Google that, you could, you'll get an idea of what we're talking about. Even if you can't spell it, it'll come up right (laughs) away. It'll be the first one. It's a really popular one. So we can start talking about what um, we call the Upper Paleolithic period, which is about 36,000 B.C. It goes back to 40,000 B.C. to about 
12,000 BC, we'll say. And at 36,000 BC is the, the time period I throw out because that's when we think the oldest female figurine found days, dates to. That's the Holzfell figurine. Um, the period after that, we kind of call the Mesolithic. That's between about 12 and 8 to 10 BC. And then the period that we're also going to focus in on, aside from the Upper Paleolithic, is the Neolithic. And that's when people start settling down and farming. And that's between 8,000 uh, to about 3,000, 2,000 BC or so. So the Upper Paleolithic, everyone is still hunter-gatherers. We're going to be talking about Europe, so everything from Western Europe through Eastern Europe up to Northern, over into a bit of Siberia, is sort of this region where these so-called Venus figurines have been found. That's also the place where we find a lot of other cave art and things like that. And everybody at this time are hunter-gatherers, including Neanderthals, which are still hanging on in parts of Europe, in, I believe, France, Spain, and Italy, at least, maybe even Gibraltar, I believe, um, through about 20,000 years ago, I think. When did Neanderthals start to die out? Right. So they are living at 40,000 years ago when we get the first evidence for early modern humans entering into that part of Eastern and Western Europe, and um, they coexist for at least 10,000 years. And sometime between 30 and 20,000 years, their populations really seem to diminish. And then we don't see a lot of evidence for them really um, after 20,000 years ago. So okay. So if that helps anchor us. That does. Okay. Yeah, that gives us a good kind of timeline and helps us, helps me anyway, kind of contextualize where we're at in time. So I got interested in what I started calling the Venus hypothesis when yeah. I began um, teaching just human prehistory. So people come into the classroom and it's one of the things they know about. Maybe they've just come across it on the internet, articles they've read, or they've taken an art history course or anything, because it's some of the first representations we have of the human form on the planet, the oldest ones that we have. And um, what I know as one of the most persistent Venus hypotheses that are uh, not well supported is that Venus figurines, with their often curvaceous representations of breast, hips, and buttocks, are presumed to have been basically paleoporn or erotic <laughs> art that was made by men for men. Um, so it's not exactly clear what the evidence is that they would be have been made by men or how they would have mm-hmm. been used by men. But the hypothesis rests on a couple of assumptions. And from what I can tell from the literature, one assumption is that males in general across the board are biologically wired to have um, an obsession with erotic visual stimulation. So it's hardwired in their human biology. And I, you know, I think you could look around and some people might say, yeah, that rings true. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's right. But probably not all men. But anyway, (laughs) you know, there is there is something about that that people look for uh, maybe an evolutionary biological uh, basis for. Mm -hmm. And the other assumption is that all men prefer women with hourglass figures Mm -hmm. being because um, perhaps those waist to hip ratios, small waist, large breasts, large hips evolved 
in women to be reliable indicators of female fertility. So what do you think about that? Mm. That's interesting, isn't it? So I have some I have some questions about that. And I have some questions, um, you know, about these figurines within what you were just saying as well. So so kind of step back a little bit. And were these figurines mostly female that you that have been found through time? Are they good? Good. Okay. So great questions. And this is what the answers I'm going to give you are coming from um, a variety of research I've done, but one particularly wonderful article is by um, April Noel and Melanie Chang. It was a 2014 article in American Anthropologist that points out a lot of the assumptions and lack of data that are supporting this idea that the Venus figurines with paleoporin. So your very first question is a great one. Most of the figurines we have from the Upper Paleolithic are not female. Most of the figurines are actually of animals. Mm, okay. 90% over 90% that we have recovered from this whole swath, uh, this large geographical area in Western and Eastern Europe, Northern Europe are of animals. And then the ones that are anthropomorphic, that mm-hmm. look to be human, um, that's about... 50-50 that we can even tell if they're male or female versus sort of androgynous. Okay. And then of the ones that we can tell, you know, again, another half of them are probably female. So it's okay. not by far this overwhelming majority of art that people made during the Upper Paleolithic. It's not like they were cranking out these voluptuous, yeah. um, curvy female, uh, figurines. female figurines. And, and yeah. the other thing people note is that they... Um, you know, they focus on these secondary sexual characteristics, but they're also um, features that are associated with female fertility. Okay. So maybe not just the male sexual preference, right. perhaps. Right. So when you say that, of course, that means that these figurines were emphasizing breasts and buttocks. But also bellies in a lot bellies, of cases. So when they talk about hips. the hip-to-waist yeah. ratio, some of these figurines have very protruding stomachs Okay, um, and look pregnant. pregnant. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So a lot of them don't necessarily have this hourglass figure. I also think it's kind of amusing to think about a bunch of archaeologists yeah. sitting in a lab with tiny little measuring tapes and measuring these little <laughs> figurines. Um, it doesn't sound very scientific to me. Right. And then measuring human women and trying to make a comparison yeah. um, with those ratios. <laughs> right, exactly. And so, you know, thinking about those, the, the what these look like with their the large hips, the large breasts, and then of course, oftentimes large bellies, that might mean that these were pregnant women. And of course, what happens when you are pregnant, since I've been pregnant and no, <laughs> Me too. is the things, everything grows when everything. you're pregnant. Yep. Not just your not belly. Not just your belly. <laughs> <laughs> and again, that's for most women. I'm sure it's yeah. not necessarily the same. We never want to say everything right, is always true. But obviously the trend is, is yeah. that, you know, breasts are definitely getting larger and more full with milk. All women experience that. Um, and your um, your abdomen is obviously growing, but you tend to also get padding all around those areas between like your thighs and your shoulders. Yeah, <laughs> and and just as women grow older too, you know, thinking about not just that time of fertility or that time when women 
or that childbearing age. But as you grow older, your body becomes more padded, <laughs> um, you know, and your your breasts become larger. But your you know your your whole body oftentimes very very few of us have the same body (laughs) in our postmenopausal years that we did when we're at the height of our fertility in our teenage years which is not necessarily when we have our kids these days anyway right right. exactly so bodies change and they change over time they could be representing many things so this idea that they were definitely sexual objects um i think some of them maybe to some men today in modern era might look that way. I think to um, other people cross-culturally, they might look very different. But this idea that they could be rated on their attractiveness based on their waist-to-hip ratio um, didn't seem very scientific. Also, it meant that they were leaving out a huge amount of the figurines in which the body proportions were actually very slim. And the figurines themselves were not even portrayed naked. They were, there was clothing detailed on some of their features. So not all of them really even show these exaggerated characteristics or necessarily pregnancy. So some of the figurines are not, um, are show very, um, very kind of stick figure like, um, figures. Right. Mm -hmm. And then there's some figures where it's, it's absolutely just a, and these things are made out of clay, out of stone, out of ivory, antler, bone, Mm -hmm. um, a huge range of materials. And they're made over tens of thousands of years. So it's also hard to imagine that there's one right explanation across time and across cultures, unless we're going to say we were biologically wired to produce them, but they don't all look alike. Some of them do share some amazing characteristics, but none of them all look the same. And I think that's really important to to make that point and to also not ignore, again, that there's such a small percentage of the art that Paleolithic people made. In the Upper Paleolithic, the parietal art, the art that you find on walls in caves, um, is almost entirely of animals or of geometric shapes. Mm-hmm. There's almost no humans represented. Okay. So I know I've seen hands every once in a while, but that's probably that's a, it. A small that's it. You're showing, but not of, of a whole human right, body. So right. you might get a, most of an animal body or an animal head, but you don't get human heads represented. You do get the hands, as if hmm. documenting that they're there yeah. or that they made the imagery that you're seeing, but not um, attempts to represent the form that way. So it seems to be that far more of the Paleolithic mind was consumed with thinking about animals and creating geometric symbols that must have had some meaning as well. Okay. So some other things that I've heard and read recently about these female figurines were that they were, um, uh, the, the, you know, you said that some of them are naked. Yeah. Some of them are naked. Some of them are clothed. But um, the ones that were naked were used as kind of erotic um, <laughs> symbols for 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 these hunter-gatherer people and I just want to ask you about that what do you think about that yeah um 
first of all, it's sort of creepy to think about how these figurines might have been used erotically. So mm-hmm. we won't ask what people do with the magazines. That right. Are under, right? right. We're just going <laughs> to leave it know. at that. We don't want to know. But the idea that hunter-gatherers would have found naked breasts erotic or the naked body seems not to hold with what anthropologists know about most hunter-gatherer societies in which seeing naked breasts um, would, would have been very common. And they're not necessarily thought of in the same way that men picking up a Playboy magazine might think about breasts okay. um, today or anything like that. So it, it, to project that back would have been very different. So we, we don't have any cross-cultural evidence to presume that there would be a universal eroticism associated with naked breasts. A lot of the figurines, they are small and portable mm-hmm. um, and they they some of them look like they have been held or even worn that there would have been some hole so they were like worn like a necklace or um, or have a kind of a um, a way to um, we've got we've got Sophie with us today which is Nancy's little little dog she's a cutie she's a bit and voluptuous so, and herself. yeah she is she's a <laughs> so she's she's a she was making some growling okay, noises. Happier, I don't know if it's me now. or... No, she wanted to come up and be part of the conversation, okay. I think. She wants just to sit with us. Yes, yes. So, um, so exactly. So yeah. they seem to have maybe even been worn like okay. an amulet, held, transported. They may have been passed down. Some of them may have traveled. And then there's a super interesting theory um, at Dolny Vestonici in Eastern Europe, a site where very early on people were figuring out how to fire clay and in some cases they intentionally left enough moisture in the clay mm. when they would put it in a fire so that the thermal shock would make the objects explode so they could find some objects made and they could see areas where these were intentionally exploding almost like um, some kind of divination ritual mm. or something mm-hmm. where they were intended to so definitely they could have been used in different ways in different places, could have had very different meanings. So again, this idea that they represent this hardwired male mm. idea that, and that they drove the physical form to change, to become an hourglass shape, to project fertility through that, to be universally mm-hmm. recognizable. It's, it's just a really heavy biological genetic argument that I, I don't think stands up well, as I like to say, um, you know, yes, you have that kind of argument of sexual selection that Darwin pointed out with the peacock's tail. You know, a lot of energy goes into that tail, and the only thing it does is helps him get a female, mm-hmm. maybe lets him outcompete if he's got the better tail and he can wag it and swag it. But yeah. but you don't get all females having an hourglass figure, right. certainly across time, across cultures, and in different places. So it's it's hard to see that argument really having biological evidence, cultural evidence that supports it, because we also don't see the same preferences in terms of attractiveness across Mm -hmm. all cultures. No reason to expect that it would have been the same. Nevertheless, we bring it up all the time when we teach because it's so persistent. And I just want to read a few quotes so that we understand why this is something we want to address um, in this podcast and and to talk about how powerful some of these myths can become and how sticky and persistent. Um, So when they found the more the most recent and oldest um, female figurine, the Hose Fell Venus, they call it, in 2009, they published and 
so many newspapers and science publications picked it up and would have titles like Paleolithic Pornography Unveiled, Smut Mm. Carved from a Mammoth Tusk, or Archaeologists Unearth Oldest Known 3D Pornography, Mm. Prehistoric Pinup, 35,000-Year-Old Sex Object, all these kinds of things. And this is 2009, which is hearkening back to the 1970s when this idea was first put down in print, where they first actually measured the hip-to-waist mm. ratio and compared them to Playboy pinups and tried to make a scientific case for this sort of biological argument. Um that the bulging venous breasts and enormous buttocks and pendulous breasts, you might have to turn this off if you've got young kids in the room, along with vulva drawn on the cave walls were undoubtedly male art creations for themselves or for other men. And this is men writing this. And Mm -hmm. I don't think there's any bit of evidence that they were undoubtedly created by men for men. They seem much more likely to be created by women for For women women. for fertility purposes. Um, And the variations are are so different. Um, But we still see, you know, these 2009 headlines mimicking these earlier ones. The figurines match almost exactly the erotic interests of essentially alert modern males. This is telling us much more about men in the 1970s, I think, than it is about Paleolithic men. (laughs) And finally, the last one I'll read, female figures in Paleolithic art often appear in sexually inviting attitudes, which may be quite the same as those in the most brazen pornographic magazines, Mm. a straight line from Ice Age to Rodin to the Playboy bunnies of later years. And that was by Bjorn Curtin in 1986. Hmm. Interesting, interesting. Hmm. So more recently, um, we'd like to think that these ideas have gone away, but I think today we still get reflections of what is going on in our culture now, and that often drives our interpretations. And sometimes we go in then to an analysis with the bias baked in. So Randy White, who is a, an eminent um, Paleolithic archaeologist, he works at New York University, and he studies Neanderthals, early modern humans, and he did an amazing, exhaustive article, a study of what we can find out about um, these so-called figurines, Venus figurines and other figurines from the Paleolithic period. And he noted that the very earliest interpretations in the mid-1800s looked at Venus figurines not as potentially ideas of ideal attractiveness and of male's preference for a certain body form, but they were looked at as possible ways to understand different representations of racial groups. Mm -hmm. And so at that time in Europe, people were all about their identity, their Mm -hmm. homeland, their Mm -hmm. race, so very much reflecting that particular time. Right. So we see a complete move away from that. Um, And then interestingly, this um, idea of fertility and um, the female uh, maybe making these forms comes out in the 1970s when we have um, a feminist movement and you see women looking down at their own pregnant bodies and bellies and and a a gentleman did a very interesting study where he had women look down and photograph their own bodies and then he photographed some of the figurines the same way Mm -hmm. and 
they look like they a dead ringer. It's yeah. in some cases, yeah. Because a lot of these figurines have large breasts and large legs, but then their feet are very, very tiny. Or and, not you know, at all or there. Or not yeah. at all there. And the heads are very small or not at all there. And the arms are and very the, tiny yeah. or not there either. So or it's almost as in. if, yes, or tucked, tucked in, in around the belly yeah. or on the breasts, yeah. and they look very small, which is how it would look from your perspective. Yeah. So that was a very interesting, yeah, that's interesting. perspective. Uh-huh. So this idea of fertility really took hold with, um, I think, Maria Gambudis's work, who she started as an archaeologist, a Lithuanian archaeologist, mm-hmm. in the 1940s. And in the 1970s, I can't remember the name of the book. We had just been speaking of it. Yeah. But she was talking about um, the idea of a fertility cult and a goddess cult, and this idea that these figurines might represent a time period where the figurines were not just maybe talismans for women, but they actually represented some ritual thinking, behavior, and that perhaps there was a lot of ritual or religious um, uh, behavior that went into women's fertility and understanding that and that being sacred at that time period and that perhaps then women had a lot of power and Mm -hmm. deities maybe would have been perceived as feminine right right and of course that coincides with the feminist movement right right and a more matriarchal look at look at that and and of course at that time in the 1970s there was a huge feminist movement so this got wrapped up into that into that movement as well Absolutely. Um, mm-hmm. So that that held on for a while until there was a big backlash. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'll talk about that a little bit more when we move on to the Neolithic and the and the Malta period, because it that's where the backlash, I think, was, yeah. was heaviest, yeah. because there's a little more known about that period than there is this Paleolithic context. We don't have a lot of good archaeological contextual data for these figurines. So it leaves much more room for interpretation and to just objectify the objects, to kind of study them out of their context. And one good example of that, and a recent example, is an article by Dixon and Dixon, who were um, both um, at the time teaching at the School of Biological Sciences at the Victoria University of Wellington in New Zealand. And they set out to determine if Venus figurines might be universally recognized as, quote, symbols of fertility or attractiveness, unquote. So what Dixon and Dixon were were doing, I think, um, Crystal, is they were trying to sort of simultaneously test both the Venus figurines as porn and the Venus figurines as fertility figures or goddesses, you know, yeah, kind of at the same time. Right. Try to bring both of those ideas in to um, look at both of them side by side, which right. I think is kind of interesting and a little problematic. <laughs> but anyway, keep going. <laughs> no, but I, you know, how do you do that? Yeah. Though, right. Yeah. How do you how do you determine if they're symbols of fertility or attractiveness? How do we know what Paleolithic people were thinking? Well, Dixon and Dixon decided to investigate this hypothesis by showing pictures of 14 Paleolithic female figurines to a group of undergraduate students. And How old were these undergraduates? Yeah, good, good question. Um, these undergraduates were an average age of 20. There was 161 of them. Okay. So they're young people, right? Yeah, probably most hadn't... Um, 
gone through some of the things that these female figurines are showcasing, like pregnancy or... I would expect very few of them had yeah. were parents right, right. that they were asking. Yeah. And perhaps their ideas of attractiveness were no doubt largely circumscribed by the culture they're living in now. But they were asked to determine if the particular figurine they were looking at looked to be a woman who was of fertile age or or pregnant and rate the attractiveness. Hmm. Just a picture of a figurine. Hmm. I'm not sure what that they thought these opinions of 161 young heterosexual men and women were going to tell us about the Paleolithic mind. Mm -hmm. I'm not really sure this is good science to ask uninformed people to rate the attractiveness of these artifacts completely out of context. And what I guess my question is, what were their qualifications for attractiveness? Exactly. And they, they do, um, they do lay out all their, I mean, it's, it's just a number scale. Mm -hmm. Um, but you're asking a group of people who are all very similar. So we're not getting a cross-cultural perspective, much less a temporal perspective, right? So you're Mm -hmm. not going to get a huge variety. You're going to get male and female, but the mean age is 20. There wasn't a huge variety even in, in age. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, I know over over the course of my life, what I consider attractive has, Mm -hmm. has changed, right? right? So I'm not really sure how we can object measure those things. Mm-hmm. It's, it's um, always interesting to me to try to quantify those. But more importantly, um, what did we think this was going to tell us about what Paleolithic people were doing with these or why they made them? And the most important thing I think I took away was it, is that it, this kind of science perpetuates the objectification of the female form mm-hmm. by men and women, mm-hmm. looking at it, measuring it, rating it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Isn't that what we're just trying to move away from? <laughs> I think so. And, <laughs> and perhaps even these, you know, these folks thought maybe they were trying to get away from this by this. Yeah. But my question yeah. is, you know, I don't see people doing this with um, with Greek statues right, that are right. naked, especially with the rating the the size or attractiveness of the the genitalia of the male form. They are known to have particularly small phalluses on Greek statues. You can mm-hmm. look that up online. <laughs> um, we also know, you know, that um, in many um, parts of the world, rock art that shows men often have very large, exaggerated phalluses, and I'm not sure that. This is an example of attractiveness or necessarily right. fertility. Right. I, you know, I mean, virility maybe, but I'm not sure we would sit down and have a whole bunch of people rate the attractiveness of those right of that phalluses, and definitely yeah. Yeah. not that they were realistic interpretations of of what people look like or even what their ideal would have been. For right. goodness' sake, you know, and that's a really good analogy. Nancy, too, is that looking at that rock art of those male figures with these, um, you know, very, very enhanced pieces of their body, just like yes. this, you know. <laughs> just like the women with the, like really, the really, really large, really yes, enhanced. in some cases. And so, you know, yes. it is a good, but we don't see any studies. I don't, I've never seen one. That doesn't mean they don't exist, but I've never seen anything like this rating the attractiveness of those. And we're not obsessing that, that you know, the the San women were obsessed with men with very, very large vowels. I mean, we never hear these presumptions being made the other way. It's it's usually yeah. the objectification is, is going one way. And that brings us to 
this final study yeah. we, we want to talk about, because you actually came across this. Yeah, I came across it on Facebook, and, um, you know, just a, there was a reaction to it, I guess, on Facebook. And so I, um, you know, we were talking about doing this, this um, conversation here on our podcast about the figurines, about the female figurines. And then this article was published in 2020, and there was a reaction from a lot of archaeologists and um, other and historians on Facebook about this article. So I immediately sent it to you, Nancy, and <laughs> and, uh, and you had a reaction as well. <laughs> I, d- I did. I did. I, I found there to be a lot of baked-in assumptions again to this one. So I want to just describe for people what it is. There's three authors, Richard Johnson, Miguel Lanaspa, I'm sure I'm not saying that right, and John Fox. And um, it's primarily authored by uh, medical doctors. They're not anthropologists. And it's an article published in the journal Obesity. And this is just in 2020, so just last year. Mm-hmm. The greatest year on record, right? Right. <laughs> um, upper Paleolithic figurines showing women with obesity may represent survival symbols of climatic change is the title. Okay, so the idea in this article is that they are going to look at Venus figurines or these Paleolithic figurines' female forms and see that if they represent an an adaptive way to deal with advancing glaciers, climate stress, colder temperatures um, during the last uh, episodes of the Ice Age in Mm -hmm. the Paleolithic period. So they start out by saying... Obesity is rare in hunter-gatherer cultures. Now, this is a true statement. But then they say, nevertheless, dozens of handheld figurines of women with obesity have been identified that date to Ice Age European hunter-gatherers from 38 to 14,000 years BP. So right there in the first two sentences, that first sentence is fine, but they presume right away that these figurines are women with obesity. And we've already talked about how they most likely, I mean, before in the 70s, they were presumed to be the erotic ideal of men. Now, in this age where there's this obsession with women's bodies and, and dealing with diabetes and all sorts of things, the the um, obsession with kind of body and fitness and, and issues, health issues surrounding obesity have become such an issue Um this is the lens through which now these Venus figurines, the latest lens mm-hmm. at which they're right. being um, looked at. And, and so the idea is, I'm not sure what, to figure out if that the figurines represent some adaptive strategy. So what they're hypothesizing is that the, the climate stress is um, requiring that women need to strive to become obese so that they could maintain their fertility um, during periods of stress. So tell me what your thoughts are on that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, you know, um, 
I guess what my question about that is, or my thoughts on that, is that are they calling um, <laughs> pregnant women obese? Because there's, you know, when I look at these figurines, I see them often. They're holding their their um, their bellies where they would be pregnant. Uh, they are obviously, like I talked about before, um, larger maybe because of pregnancy. So, so that really kind of devolves into that idea that, you know, are they are they equating pregnancy with obesity? And I know that probably they have scientific qualifications and, for that and work. Let's remember these are men who right, don't ever right. get pregnant writing these <laughs> exactly. articles. That's a very, very dangerous impression to yeah. be leaving with yeah. us that we're gonna say pregnant women's bodies look like obese bodies, which my presumption is to them obese bodies are are a cause of study because they're unhealthy and unattractive, right? Yeah, that's right. that's the underlying assumptions which are damaging, hurtful, and sort of uh, the assumptions underlying this whole article. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, right, I think the first issue is a lot of these are don't represent um, women that are obese, and they represent women who are in a fertile state. Right, right. And others of them they just didn't look at. So when mm-hmm. I looked at it, oh, Crystal, yeah, yeah. yeah. You were noticing this. That they, they biased their sample. They threw some, some things out. Right. Yeah, so what that. they said, and I want to read it exactly because okay. I don't want you to think I'm just making this stuff up because they yeah. say it themselves. They talk about how they selected the figurines, how they measured them. Again, they do the waist-to-hip, waist-to-shoulder ratio of the female figurines, which I always find remarkable that people are measuring these little figurines Mm -hmm. as if they represent real human-female dimensions, even when they don't have heads or feet. Um, (laughs) And then they say um, that to ensure an unbiased determination, these images were randomly coded and all this, but they mention that they had to exclude some figurines because they were made of material that limited their dimensions. For example, engravings on antlers. So any engravings that they perceive to be made on an antler, which can only express so much change in girth or obesity, naturally looks kind of slim and linear, they threw those out. So in other words, there's a whole other bunch of figurines, as we've mentioned, that are either androgynous or don't have these voluptuous proportions. So we have plenty of those, and somehow those are then not considered part of the sample. So that's going to bias in favor, of course, of having these rounder proportions. But if you're presuming that they represent obesity rather than pregnancy, you're making this very strange equivalency between those two physical forms Mm -hmm. of obesity and pregnancy. And it's incredibly problematic, mm-hmm. I think, with the interpretation. Again, I'm not sure, you and I were puzzling over this, what the point in a modern journal on obesity was to go this far back in the past and look at Venus figurines from this huge period and perhaps say that obesity is an adaptive strategy to maintain fertility. Mm-hmm. So two things for the Marie for there. One mm-hmm. is that I don't think any hunter-gatherer groups ever experienced obesity. Mm-hmm. As far as we know, we don't have any data demonstrating that. It, and I'm not sure how it's physically possible before you had farming, before you had high-calorie foods, and you could stay sedentary in one place. Mm-hmm. I don't think obesity was possible. Mm-hmm. Um, as we said earlier, pregnant bodies look rounder and fuller. Mm -hmm. Um, So that makes sense and why you might want to make 
art about that. That's where your new people are coming from, from mm-hmm. those bodies. Um, and then I lost my train of thought for and, the second one. And the second one is that, you know, I think this is where you're going. I don't know. I, hope you, I hope you got it. <laughs> is that, and this is what I was thinking anyway, is that also hunter-gatherer societies weren't often in starvation mode. I'm, I'm sure right. there was times of starvation, but they had their, their stuff down. They knew what they were doing. They were well-fed. They were fed to the amount they needed to be. They had... Um, you know, they a lot of studies of hunter-gatherer groups that were done by anthropologists in the uh-huh. 60s and 70s do demonstrate that they right. have, have food and nutrition. And we know that we have people living above the Arctic Circle in right. the same Ice Age conditions who do just fine and don't necessarily have um, a reverence for obesity or problems right. with fertility. So clearly if there are problems with fertility with hunter-gatherers, we wouldn't be here as a species. Exactly, exactly. And, and maybe through our lens of today, we see hunter-gatherer groups as, um, as you know, too skinny or, or having that look of starvation. But of course, that is through our lens, which is completely different. Right. And so and, and that brings us to this idea of culture. Yes. And we, you know, we all have our own cultural lens. And that is one thing that I see missing in this article, which, you know, obviously probably is missing because there isn't there, there are medical doctors and there is, I think, one anthropologist on the on the article. Is that correct? But there is. Um, there is. So um, he's in the Department of Anthropology um, in the United Arab Emirates. Yeah. So but of course, as cultural anthropologists or as um, archaeologists or historians, we would look to culture for a lot of these answers, and they're looking um, in different places. And so we, we see the answers, of course, in culture, where right. they are looking for answers in, in biology. In biology, so right. more of a biological basis. And interestingly, they're still saying the reason, of course, they find what they're looking for. Right, right. I believe their sample was biased, but they, they do say that... Um, the object of this obesity in their conclusion is to maintain female fertility. So it brings us back. So it kind of comes back to fertility at the end anyway. Exactly. Yeah, so that's interesting. So yeah. the idea is that we are still looking at these figurines as a way to deal with female fertility, whether mm-hmm. or not they were stressed there might be other objective ways to measure the stress on the bodies of these hunter-gatherers relative to the bodies of hunter-gatherers of other places if they really thought this is what was driving it in Europe. But it seems to me you might have more specific and local reasons, time and place, um, that might have had to do it. But ideas of fertility are very, very universal. And concepts of obesity are also very cultural and I Mm -hmm. think probably don't really become... um, more commonly thought about in terms of within a population to have people who maybe have a lot more body fat than others until you get into these sedentary Neolithic societies and perhaps some people are moving more and have access to more and other people have less. And so with that, let's let's turn to the Neolithic. Let's turn to Malta. Okay. Before we do that, we'll take a quick station break here. You are listening to The Dirt on the Pass with co-hosts Nancy Mahoney and myself, Crystal Alegria, on kgvm.org, Bozeman, 
or wherever you find your podcasts. We are speaking today about Venus, I'll put that in air quotes, Venus figurines, and the objectification of women's bodies, and um, some of these myths, some of the facts. So I'm glad you're here with us listening today. So let's move to the Neolithic and, and um, and talk a little bit about some of these female figurines that have been found on the island of Malta. And Malta is near and dear to my heart because um, when I was in college, I did a, a study abroad. I did a semester abroad, and I studied in Malta. And for those of you who don't know where Malta is, it is in right in the middle of the Mediterranean between Sicily and Africa. And it's just this beautiful little paradise. It's a wonderful place. And I had the opportunity to study there for a semester. And it was really life-changing for me to go to this culture, because it's a completely different culture. And I had grown up in Montana, and I was, you know, I had never really gone. I had never gone out of the United States at this point in time. And so um, when I got on the airplane and flew to Malta, it was quite an amazing experience for this Montana girl to see this, the big, big wide world. What an amazing (laughs) experience. And, And Malta has always, it's only been something I've wanted to I've wanted to visit the place because of the archaeology there but I think about the people and I'm thinking what an interesting place they inhabit as you're saying in the Mediterranean between sort of Sicily and and North Africa and can you tell us a little bit about what the people are like there and language they speak cultural whatever because it must be such an interesting it's a really interesting mix because you know that's it's an island so they've been colonized again and again and Uh, again by a lot of different people but um, you know there's a real mixture of um, you know people speak Italian there they speak um, they speak English, they speak Maltese, so there is the Maltese language. An indigenous In, language, yep, too. Yep, oh, wow. and, but it is a mixture of a lot of other languages oh, sure. as well. And, you know, there's Turkish influences, there's, you know, there's just all these different um, cultural elements coming together on this island. And that Mediterranean world, such yeah, an amazing mix. It, yeah. it really is. And so it was like, it was the perfect place for me to go to to learn about the world. And like I said, it was life-changing. And and so I spent a semester there, but the first few days, I was part of this college program, you know, kind of one of those study abroad programs. And so the first few days, they had all of us study abroad students get together and go and visit different parts of the island. And one of the first places that we went to were these ancient temples, the, one of the ancient temple sites that is on Malta. And it was uh, amazing, overwhelming, but, you know, um, spectacular to see these this temple, this old ancient temple. This These temples are much older than even Stonehenge. They're some of the earliest temples in the world um, that were built. And yeah, until until they found Gobekli Tepe, which is fairly recent, and that dates to about 9,000 years ago, um, Malta has been known as having the very first megalithic architecture, large yeah. stone architecture anywhere. So this is the first for sure in Europe. And there's a large gap between Gobekli Tepe and this. But um, so there were farmers living there before mm-hmm. they built this. Mm-hmm. But 
some from 5000 BC? Yeah, so it was settled about 5000 BC. Okay. And of course, you know, we're in the Neolithic now. So these are sedentary people, they're farmers, uh, and they are farming on on Malta. But they have a very um, structured, you know, system as well. And it that can be seen by these temples. And so it was amazing. It was amazing to see these temples. And, you know, of course, I was very, I was probably, you know, I was very young. I was in my, probably my, I was probably 20 or so when I was there. It was in a long time ago in 1993, 94, in that time frame. And so um, seeing these temples was amazing because I had not seen anything like this before. What do they look like? They're tell? huge. <laughs> they're these huge stone megaliths, like you said. And wow. they, you know, they, they're probably, of course, they might have had, um, they might have had, um, roofs, roofs on, on them, yeah. but at this point they don't have roofs any longer. But they stand, you know, depending on the temple. There's quite a few throughout the island, but depending on the temple, the the stones are kind of like what you think of when you think of Stonehenge. They're large, and um, so they were they moving tower massive, massive, oh, massive boulders, tons, tons, tons. Yeah. yeah, and and they think that they moved them with these round rocks. So at some of the temple sites, you see these groupings of these round balls that are you know these huge stones that have been made into a ball where they would have put the stone on that and then rolled it okay so you know that's their theory i know and no metal tools so this is all done with stone tool technology but by people not aliens (laughs) you sure yeah (laughs) but um but yeah they're they're very impressive and so and then unlike stonehenge these ones are in size they have Art within them. They have spirals. There's spirals everywhere. There's, There's a lot. Pitting. A lot of carvings on carvings the stones. Carvings on the stones. Okay. Yeah. And they're very, um, when you go into them, you can see niches, you see altars, you see um, statues. There's still some statues in, in some of wow. these um, megalithic structures. So, one, so, so that first you know, a couple of days we were in Malta, we went and visited one. And then on my birthday, um, the group of people I was there that I got to be friends with that I'm still friends with some of them. We still um, yeah, see those, each other those yearly. places create bonds they yeah, do. when you're there they together. Do. Yeah. Um, and so th- this this group of friends, and we went to another one of the temple complexes. And within this temple complex, there's actually a statue and we would call that a female statue, um, but half of it is missing. The upper torso half um, and the head is missing, so you only see the bottom half from like the waist down. But the person or the statue has a uh, skirt on and then very large legs. So it really kind of mirrors this idea that of these female figurines that we've been talking about. But it's a statue, so it would stand probably, you know, if, if the upper torso was on it, it would probably stand, um, you know, maybe four feet tall. Wow. So So kind huge. of really big monumental mm-hmm. statuary mm-hmm. as well. Again, nothing like this at, at Stonehenge. This is no. Malta is doing its own thing. It, they've got their own thing going, and it's everyone amazing. Else. Yeah. Because yeah. at Gobekli Tepe, they were carving on those um, those upright stones. Right. Um, it, these but, stones but are very relief. similar to but that. But this is actually yeah. sculpture three-dimensional, mm-hmm. and they're carving into limestone. And then they're even yeah. excavating these large 
caves, right? Yeah, out of- so they have these things called hypogeums, which are down below the Earth's surface. So they are carving down into the limestone of the island, and they're carving temples and places underneath the ground as well. So they have temples above ground, but then they also had these other uh, places below ground. Okay, Crystal. That are very temple-like as what, well. What were they doing in these structures, and, <laughs> and why Why do we know they're temples and not houses? Yeah. Well, you know, that's a good question, and we don't know they're temples. We assume they're temples based on these niches and these altars and the other things that we see in them that remind us of other temples, of other sacred places in you know, they remind you of a church. If you've ever gone into a, a Catholic church, there's apses and there's, you know, it, it reminds you of that when you go into these temples. So that's why I called them a temple. Um, some people don't well, call them temples. Well, they're so big. If they yeah. would have been a house, wouldn't yeah. you expect to see remains of just regular domestic everyday tasks? Mm-hmm. And then how many people would have lived in them? So in what ways do you think they're different, aside from just their size and the fact that a huge amount of well, labor must have gone into constructing them? Right. And, uh, and the, you know, the reason is, is because of the artifacts that are found inside these temples as well. So in some of the temples, they've found lots of animal bone, um, burned bone, which could symbolize either um, sacrifices or feasting. Ah. Um, they've also um, found bodies in, you know, skeletal remains in some of these, in some of these temples, but also in the hypogeum. Those, okay, so those parts of them are used ground. for people to deposit the dead, right. and then other places it looks like they're making offerings of either animals or other things and mm-hmm. having... Okay, so that definitely doesn't sound like what you'd expect to find necessarily in a domestic structure. No. It's not I mean, your you regular could, everyday trash. But, but it's it's such a large amount of bodies. Mm. Um, I think that in one of the... Um, in one of these places, they excavated what, what one of the archaeologists... Um, um, has estimated as 7,000 bodies. Right, so, right. Um, oh, and I think in the even more recent article in Archaeology Magazine, they, they said there was over 100,000 yeah. uh, human bones, separate right. human bones coming out of one of the, the parts they've excavated of a hypogeum. Right. So that's an amazing amount of people. And I think mm-hmm. they're trying to make population estimates now based on that. So maybe mm-hmm. 10,000 people, people living on the living island or something. Island. Yeah. yeah. And it's a small island. It's very, it's not very large. Um, and so to have all these temples and then there's, there's, there's um, Malta is the main island, but then there's a smaller island next to that called Gozo. And there are some temples on Gozo as well. Do they look and similar? Then, to? Mm-hmm, okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then there's a very small, another little island called Camino. And so when I was there, I was on, I lived on Malta, but I, we did visit Gozo and I saw the temple there, but um, one of the temples there, but it's, you know, it's an amazing um, temple complex, but within these temples, there were these, these figurines, these, um, these female figurines that we've been talking about from the Paleolithic. And they're, of course, probably had different meaning now during the Neolithic, but they are somewhat similar in their proportion size. There's small ones, there's big ones, you know, there's the ones like I was talking about with the the very large um, breasts and, and the large legs. In Malta, some of the figurines have uh, large legs, large buttocks, uh, 
no breasts. So it's kind of interesting. So, you know, we talked about how some of the figurines are um, male, some are female, some we don't, we can't tell whether they're male or female. And, you know, I think that brings up another point that we're just, you know, today we've just been talking about male and female, but there may have been other genders as well. This presumption that there's only two, there's plenty of um, figurines that are very androgynous and they definitely could represent some sort of other conceptuations of gender beyond just this binary. So absolutely, we have to remember about that in the past because we know so many cultures have third or or more genders. more genders, absolutely. So so that's very interesting to um, hear about that. So so there's large ones that also look female, smaller ones Mm -hmm. that look female, um, some that may be male, we're not mm-hmm. sure, or, yeah, or yeah. just some other gender. Yeah. Um, okay, and so what's been the interpretation there? How are these figurines um, referred to? I know there's one that's called the Venus of Malta. Yep, yep, there's one that's called the Venus in Malta, and she looks just like me. <laughs> you know, I mean, when you look <laughs> in a mirror and you see yourself, and then you look at this this um, figurine, it's like, oh, well, there's that's me, you know. But I see and, my physical yeah. shape as a woman there. Right, okay, right. so okay. so I mean, but there's um, there's in Malta. Well, you're the Venus of Bozeman. I know. Now. I'm the yeah, there Venus. we go. I like I that. Know. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's you know a lot of that's the fascination of these these figures and these figurines that are so old. Yeah, you know, twenty five thousand years old, but they look like yeah. Uh, I, I, they yeah. look like me. Yeah, they look like you. They look like you know. So, so talk a little bit about. Um, we had mentioned Maria Gambudis before yeah. talking about a goddess cult, and what I know about Malta now is that it is a place where a lot of people go on goddess cult. Tours. And I don't like to say cult. I like to say goddess movement. Goddess movement. Yeah. yeah. So tell us about that a little yeah. bit. Yeah. So, um, you know, there during the 70s, we like we said before, there was this feminist movement. And along with that was a goddess movement. And the idea that uh, cultures in the past had, instead of a patriarchal system, they had a matriarchal system. And Maria Kambutis really... So tell us what that means. So that means patriarchal is a male-dominated society, whereas a, a matriarchal is a female-dominated, or, or not in, dominated, but hierarchical. Women have higher status, have hierarchy, power. and power. Right, okay, right, And right. it could mean that you even trace lineages, right. matrilineal through the female side versus as we do in a lot of Western cultures or have done yeah. through the male line. Now we really do both in, in our society. Yeah. But right, so I think that was part of her her point about um, most of these European societies and, and Malta is one of these places yeah. maybe we could see it expressed is the female form is so prominent and I and I want to ask you a little bit more about not just the figurines but even the shape of the architecture of the temples. Yeah. I think I've heard referred to as being almost egg-like or womb-like. Well, they talk about so the archaeologists when they talk about these uh the 
the outlines of the temples, they say they look very much like a female figure. Uh-huh. And if you look at, you know, look at the plain view of the temple, you do see that. You see something, it looks like a head, and then it looks like the arms, and it looks like the hips. Wow. And so when you look at these temples, that's what you see. And so archaeologists have equated those two things. And so um, this all comes together with this idea that perhaps the feminine was the more basis of... Uh, sacred ritual, yeah. and again, perhaps a deity. Religious, so maybe yeah. that translated also into uh, women, human mm-hmm. women, having some higher status, maybe even authority or power. Yeah, perhaps priestesses, which is something we um, see goddesses. go away later once the Bronze Age happens. So I just want to make yeah. sure that contrast is clear to people: is that later, once we see metal tools show up and we see Indo-Europeans come into Europe, you definitely see much more representation of men, and we see also in burials distinct differences in those who have more grave goods, seem to have more power and authority, uh, mostly vested in men. Now we don't see that in the Paleolithic. What about at Malta? Do mm-hmm. we think men or women? Well, we if you would have talked to Maria Gambudas when she was living, right, right. Um, she died in 19, the 90, early 1990s, but if you would have talked to her, she would have said that this was a matriarchal culture, that this was a, um, a women-centered culture based on these figurines and some of the vulva imagery within these temples and some of the um, spiral, the spirals within sure. the temples. And, um, and so this, you know, her ideas were coming out um, during the 1970s. She started publishing in the 1940s she she was from Lithuania but she moved to the United States and and um, had a job here in the United States she was an academic part of that feminist Mm -hmm. movement even within anthropology then yeah Yeah. so she um, she was publishing about this at that same time that feminist movement was starting so she kind of got involved in it wrapped up in it and the feminist movement really put her up on the pedestal as their archaeologist and because of that, some other archaeologists kind of started to move away from her theories and some of her ideas and start to, they there was kind of challenge the, some yeah, of her kind of interpretations. Her. Yeah. Also, it got very swept up, as we talked about earlier, in kind of a more pop culture um, mm-hmm. during that time period of women saying, oh, see, back in the past, women were the ones, right. they you know, were this whole idea that, you know, I can bring home the bacon and cook it up and have it mm-hmm. all, whatever, that mm-hmm. that in the past women had power and authority. And if you're striving for equality in the present to show that equality existed in the past, mm-hmm. I think was something. So what she was trying to talk about in her archaeology was becoming very relevant and co-opted in the present. And then mm-hmm. also co-opted kind of like how you know, now you go to Stonehenge or Chaco Canyon to see, uh, have a solstice celebration. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Um, people are doing this at Malta mm-hmm. with celebrations of um, a, a goddess mm-hmm. culture or civilization. Is that, right. yeah. Right. So that turned off some archaeologists? Yeah, yeah, so some archaeologists pulled away from that. And, you know, we see it within the literature because um, we see some archaeologists in the 1980s talking about these these figurines as goddess figurines. But then as time goes on, we see them not talking about these figurines as goddess figurines, but instead they are saying they're either female figurines or they are figurines just 
the word figurine and that's it. They are not even going to put a sex on this figurine. They're so not going to call them fertility goddess not, or even female, female necessarily. They're even they're going to even sometimes suggest that they're male. <laughs> Interesting. And so kind of even going the opposite direction. So and then, there was a real backlash to this to to this, um, this goddess, goddess idea. Yeah. And so we see that in the literature and and so um so they've moved completely away and have started describing these things very um, just by what they exactly see. So they're not even talking about yeah. the structures as temples no. anymore. No, and they've moved away from um, some some people have moved away from even calling these temples, but they call them architectural complex architecture, and that's yeah. where they'll stop. So the archaeologists in their own literature, as they talk to each other, are have moved very far away. They are from, secularizing this. They're secularizing yeah. it. So they're taking the ritual out of it, yep. and they're taking the feminine out of it. Yeah. So this, this Venus of Malta is not, you know, this, this potentially deity goddess, you know, cult anymore. Um, though on the ground, if you go there today, mm-hmm. it sounds like you'll still... Here's some things about well, that. Well, you know, and that's, it's, tourism is always interesting, you know, because you have to have a narrative, you have to have something engaging. I mean, you know, with extreme history and with everything that we do, you know, there always has to be a story, there has to be a narrative, it has to be engaging. And the same thing in Malta, with, when they're trying to encourage tourists to come and and spend money in their shops, they have to have a narrative. And right. so the goddess narrative is a really good one. Right. And, um, you know, complex architecture <laughs> versus temple. Yeah. Having something know. spiritual, not just versus secular. secular. Right. Yeah. And then what's happening with, if it's not a, a goddess culture or, or female in there, how are they interpreting um, what goes on or who's who's got the control or power Mm. in these complexes well you you know when we were um preparing for this talk today i was looking at a lot of um videos about kind of tourism in malta and and um i saw some very interesting videos but one of them was really striking and then this was kind of a documentary that was made more recently and it was about um it was a um, interpretation of how these these temples were used, and they were referring to them as temples and interpreting them as temples in this reproduction. It was kind of a documentary reproduction, and so they, they were showing what kind of activities, ceremonies would have taken place in this temple, and they had priests, you know, um, performing male, male, priest. male priests performing ceremonies within this temple, and it was a, a male main male priest, and then like four or five males in the background who were supposedly probably you know priests as well, but not as much you know kind of sub priests, I guess. <laughs> and they were the ones performing ceremony, and I thought that was so fascinating, based on you know this this long history or this more recent history of how this has been kind of interpreted from a goddess situation with these women in power to now this this documentary showcasing you know um a, a reproduction of a male priest in this temple wow and so, I, I wonder what what the evidence is for yeah. there being male priests or if this is because they did mention priests also in the 
more recent archaeology article on Malta, the builders mm-hmm. of Malta, and mm-hmm. I thought, do we know if there were priests? Is there any representation or physical remains? The only thing I read was that there was an elderly woman who they found buried with this amazingly elaborate headdress of of shells, and she was clearly interpreted as having some special status. And I guess because of her bones, they knew she was a little more elderly. So that almost seems a little more in keeping with her having higher status in life, and she was found in one of these complexes. Um, And that's to the point we want to credit some of where we did our research. The This article we found by Catherine Roundtree, the case of the missing goddess, she calls it, plurality, power, and prejudice in the reconstructions of Malta's Neolithic past. And, and she has this very interesting point she makes about that some have said Maria Gambudis had a feminist and sacred or sacralizing bias in the interpretation of Malta's past. And She's actually saying now she sees more of this masculinist secularizing, so more mm-hmm. male and more secular bias in the archaeological interpretations. Um, so so this is where we want to get to the point of what's the facts themselves haven't changed mm-hmm. that much. Mm-hmm. We are learning more through the archaeology, but the lenses have, have really changed. And to really be aware of this is something we're always trying to do at Extreme History and to be aware of. And also mm-hmm. I think is is telling us is so much about ourselves as it tells us about the past and our attempts to relate and interpret it. Um, and, you know, that's what we do is, is um, you know, in our work, we're always looking at things from a different lens, from a new lens. Each generation has a, a theory for these figurines. And, of course, that's just what everybody's doing um, that we talked about today, all the different academics that are doing this work, they're looking through their own particular lens to try to better understand the past so you can understand yourself right? and you can understand your own culture and you can understand what's happening in the present. And so that's what, and then of course that's what we're doing today because we're discounting some of this work, but then we're agreeing with some of the other you right. Know, um, right. people who have written some of these articles. So we're trying to understand this through our own personal lens. And, you know, when I, when I first saw that article on, um, in the obesity journal, you know, Oof. I yeah. mean, that was a tough one. And I have to say that, you know, I told my husband about it and he's like, oh, you're just, you're just, you know, mm. bringing this and making it about yourself. And, and probably I am, but I think that that's something that but there's some serious flaws and biases yeah. in the way they did their study and even the reason mm-hmm. for doing their study. Um, I'm sure you can find correlation if you just select the right group of figurines. Right, so it's hard right. for me to look at that as serious. But there's one other group of people who who have interpretations of what went on in Malta, um, the indigenous folks. Yes, yes. Yeah, that Roundtree also talks yes, about. So tell us a little for, bit about that. Yeah, so um, that article that we read by um, Roundtree, she was talking about how, you know, um, in all this that we've talked about, not many of the scholars that have written up have talked to the indigenous people. And at Extreme History, that's one of our main focuses is always to talk to descendant community members. And so when we were reading this article by Roundtree, she talks about how she had seen this lack of talk with descendant communities with indigenous 
um, people living in Malta. So she went and she started talking to them. (laughs) And she said that um, when she um, sat down and had conversations with some of the people who lived, currently lived in Malta, she said that there was a legend and they call it a legend that the temple of um, there's a temple that the temples, and especially this one temple, were built by uh, Sansuna, which Sansuna. was a, yeah. was a superwoman or giantess who built the temples by transporting the megaliths on her head from one side of the island to the other. And she was sustained in this by eating beans and honey. And while doing all this work, she carried a baby at her breast. And she I, could do it all. I, was like, I mean, yeah, seriously, like is, this the, is this the origin of Wonder Woman right here right in there, Malta? Right, building? Exactly. I know, right? So, <laughs> you know, so I think that's so interesting, that idea of giants. And that comes in quite a bit within the um, these le- this legend of, of how these temples were built because they are so large and these stones are so large. And of course, you know, uh, we today currently are trying to figure out how Stonehenge was built and how these megaliths and Malta were built, how the temples of Egypt were built. And, you know, um, I always go back to say, well, these people had amazing civilization and technology, and they were able to do this. We've just lost some of that knowledge. Some people say it's aliens. I do not think no, that it's aliens. No, we're not going there. I think That's it is not us, even on the table. People. It's a much more interesting yeah. story anyway. And, and the aliens would have left something behind right, if, if right, they were right. here. So, um, you know, so maybe these people were giantesses in their own right, that they were giants of technology and were able to make these temples. But I love that idea, um, and I love that legend, and kind of going back and talking to the Maltese themselves and figuring out more about their myths and their mythologies and their origin stories. And it I just think that, it adds another important yeah. layer to understanding what these what these objects mean, what they mean in the present, what they meant in the past. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's telling us something about what people who made them believed about right. their own origin stories. Um, I want to give a quick shout out to um, Maria Gambudis because um, she took a, a hard hit from a lot of archaeologists and both male and female. One archaeologist in, in particular, who's extremely well known all over, huge in the field, Colin Renfrew, was particularly um, critical of her interpretations of what was going on in the early Neolithic in Europe and the origins of Indo-European speakers, which she felt came and invaded from the steppes of Asia and that they took over and really swept out this more feminine goddess culture and replaced it with a a much more masculine, and this is when we have Bronze Age coming in and we see these changes. And Renfrew has recently... um, vindicated a bit of her work. So part of it comes from genetic studies that do show the origins of the European Indo-Europeans coming from where she said, not where actually uh, were postulated by um, uh, Renfrew, but also that he his excavations um, throughout the Cycladic Islands, also in the Mediterranean, have confirmed her interpretations that a lot of these ancient female figurines, there's beautiful Cycladic figurines. Those are the things I fell in love with when I went to Cyprus about oh, the yeah. time you were visiting Malta. Yes, yes. Um, uh, that they are religious in nature, ritual, not toys or 
porn, as other people have said in other archaeological circles. So it's nice to see that um, a lot of these ideas are revisited, retested with data, rethought through a new lens. And I think this idea about fertility and it being so important to un- ritual and people understanding of their origins is really what comes through to me through everything we've read and even through all the cycles and different lenses that even in the story of the gigantess she has a baby at her breast right it's a woman it's fertility it's strength it's some some kind of supernatural entity and i think that ties together that sacred that feminine that fertility that origin story that i think so many in the paleolithic and the neolithic we're trying to understand and which we're still trying to understand today, mm-hmm. our place in the world. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, that's exactly what it's all about, is trying to understand our place in the world right. and our present. And, and you know, over these many thousands and thousands of years, these figurines and these statues probably meant different things to different people at different times. And they mean something to us. And so it's fun to look at them, and it's important to look at them and to understand what they tell us. So thanks for being with us on this journey. We've certainly enjoyed it. I hope um, it sparked some interest. Thank you so much for joining us today, and we hope you can join us again to find out more about The The Dirt Dirt on on the the Past. If you're enjoying The Dirt on the Past, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And please tell your friends and leave us a review. It really helps people find us. We're a new podcast and are trying to grow our listener base. So please share. Thanks, and thanks for listening. You've been listening to The Dirt on the Past, a podcast of the Extreme History Project and Gallatin Valley Community Radio, KGVM. To hear more episodes, visit our website at theextremehistoryproject.org. Thanks for listening, and until next time, keep searching out The Dirt on the Past. <laughs>